Delighted to welcome Aisha Hazarika, broadcaster, journalist, political commentator, and award-winning stand-up comedian. Aisha was a Labour Party special advisor to Gordon Brown, Harriet Harman, and Ed Miliband from 2007 to 2015. She now presents her own show on Times Radio, is a columnist for the Evening Standard, the Scotsman, and the Eye Paper, and a regular guest on TV and radio shows ranging from the Andrew Marsh Show to Have I Got News for You. Her first book, Punch and Judy Politics, was one of the top 10 best-selling political books for 2018. Aisha was awarded an MBE in 2016. In this conversation, recorded before the second lockdown, she talked to me about politics, comedy and power. Well, how lovely to have you on the podcast, Aisha. We met because I was due to interview Harriet Harman, who you were then working for for a series on women in power for the independent and you called to say we're ready to set up the interview and I had to say well sorry because I've just been fired and we kept in touch so I lost a job and then you lost a job when Harriet Harman left her job and we both know a fair bit about disruption and reinvention but we haven't actually lived through a pandemic before so that certainly brought a whole new raft of challenges so first of all, how has your work been disrupted by the actual pandemic? Well, it's so lovely to be doing your, your podcast, Christina. I do feel that the nice thing about that is we both lost jobs, but I feel we gained a friendship. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you know, Absolutely. we've become such good friends um, out of quite dire situations. Um, and it also, we have a nice friendship where we can be really honest, because I think a lot of, this is what I love about your podcast and about your book as well. A lot of people, I think particularly women as well, you have to put your best face forward and it's always like, yeah, everything's amazing, shamazing, and actually it's not amazing all the time and it's really terrible a lot of the time and it completely sucks and I think we should all be a bit more honest about all the bad things that are um that are sort of going on but yeah the the pandemic has just changed so much um of my work and as you said in your introduction I'm somebody who has really had to reinvent um herself over the last five years I had been a political advisor in the Labour Party for the best part of a decade. Um, you know, it was a pretty stressful job, but it was quite secure. It had certainty to it. And then suddenly um, I left and had to sort of start again and start over at sort of, you know, at the age of 40. And I've worked really hard over five years to craft what is called a portfolio career, where I'm sort of jack of all trade and mistress <laughs> of none. But, um, you know... <laughs> absolutely not anyway. um, but you know like I've done a lot you know I have like lots of different things I do some journalism I do some stand-up I do some broadcasting I do a lot of events like after dinner speaking and corporate events and of course all of that has has gone and I think for like so many freelancers and people as well who um very much work in the space of events live events whether they're performers in any way or speakers or anything like that um, and of course, you know, hospitality and stuff. We just, I, rem I remember just having this sort of horrible three weeks of every day, my agent just ringing me or emailing me saying, I'm so sorry, this has been cancelled. I'm so sorry, this has been cancelled. And I went from seeing my diary being really busy and packed to suddenly just everything getting just these white spaces mm -hmm. appearing in my diary. And it felt really frightening. 
felt very discombobulating and it has been a big shock um to to people I mean it has just been this extraordinary thing and of course there's no there's no there's no merit for it it's very hard to blame anybody because it is just this it's this pandemic it's just it's just one of those horrific situations that's completely beyond your control Mm, mm. and I think I think it's kind of you know nobody likes the phrase we're all in this all in this together because it was so tainted by George Osborne when he said it and it's not entirely true but it is true that every human on the face of the planet is affected by this pandemic and it's also true that people with very good incomes have had their living wiped out and people on very low incomes have so in one sense although um you know lots of people have said oh well people who are white collar workers and work at home in front of their computers and they've got a spare room and so on are better off that's absolutely true if they have although obviously if you're in London and you've got a spare room you are a banker but um it's it really is across the board and you can't actually predict all that well who has been affected financially and work-wise because I think one of the things we will see is a lot of uh, people who've been used to quite high salaries very sadly, um, discovering that, uh, you know, the delights of universal credit. But um, we'll, we'll go more into job loss later because it's a slightly gloomy topic to, <laughs> to start on. Jazz but hands. I wanted, <laughs> but um, I wanted you, you are still, you, you started, so you had your diary wiped out and you still did your six million other jobs. But, um, but you have done masses of chairing of things and talks and comedy gigs online as well. So I presume it took a while to build those up and of course it isn't the same but what has it been like doing comedy online? Well it's it is very um it is very bizarre and actually one of a a group that I do really feel for are comedians because you know Mm. comedians are very particular you know type of of human being um, they often find their place in the world of comedy because they couldn't find their place in the rest of the world. They sort of mm. didn't fit in with like doing, you know, comedians come from all different backgrounds and all different walks of life. But the thing that unites us is that we didn't quite fit in doing what we were um, doing. And then you find the comedy circuit and you're like, ah, I feel like at home. This is what I mm. like doing. I like being on the stage. I like performing in this weird basement room with like sort of sweat dribbling down the walls. I feel at home. I can breathe in this kind of COVID polluted air um, and it's been it has been hard of course it's just a completely different um, dynamic but I I have been lucky in the sense that I have actually managed to um, keep myself busy I mean the Londoner diary was very hard because um, basically all the party stopped but we had to try and find mm. other things to to write about and similarly um, with a lot of the kind of live events and the comedy events and the sort of speak spoken word events that I would be normally involved in we have been able to um, move them online but some of them have been very weird like probably that I had to record some stand-up where I had to like film myself this is the other really hilarious thing I have actually gained some new skills and one of those skills is I've had to become a cameraman I've had to learn how to become a cameraman or camera person so I've lots of I've taken part in a lot of documentaries for example but they have sent a camera to my house the day before and they have sent instructions and then I have had to get rigged up to a tech person on zoom and then I've had to literally set up an entire mini studio by myself in my house and then and then film something with them sort of remotely plugging in so that's something I've done maybe about like 10 times now or something 
goodness, what yeah. have the documentaries been about? They've been quite a lot about the royal family, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I think you'll now find I'm a royal correspondent. <laughs> I thought your portfolio career was already pretty wide ranging, but I have to say that's one particular yeah. skill I wouldn't have selected for I'm you. I'm new Jenny Bond, and I'm very happy about it. I'm like a sort of <laughs> bee, I'm like a brown beige Jenny Bond, and I'm really happy about it. Um, and then we've done I've done some stuff for um, some BBC Scotland, some comedy stuff for BBC Scotland, mm. where I had to film myself, and it was so hard, like to get the right camera angle. But then I had to walk in and like pretend I was like in a comedy club and sort of wave to people and be like, "Hey." Hey, hey and it felt I felt like I was losing my mind oh, extraordinary. so um yeah it's been quite interesting but one of the things I suppose trying to be philosophical and positive and you all you, I mean it's so easy to get negative you have to sort of have your moments where you have a really good talk to yourself and go okay you have to try and sort of see the good it's kind of taken me back to a bit of um like kind of ground zero which was when I started doing my freelance stuff five years ago I had this rule where I just said yes to everything I just said yes to everything doesn't matter if it like wasn't paid or if it was not for a you know, huge organization I just thought right say yes to everything because it's better to be doing something than not and mm -hmm. everything could be a bit of an opportunity so I have actually gone back to that and found quite a lot of comfort and just keeping myself busy and I've ended up doing some quite interesting things and doing stuff I probably wouldn't have had the time to do um you know when my schedule was was you know uh, you know the way it was beforehand so from that point of view some of it has been quite interesting and probably quite good for me well, I must say, I mean, I just catch glimpses of your schedule on Twitter and I feel so exhausted. I feel like I need a lie down. So I have absolutely no idea how you do it. But there's no point in me saying, how do you do it? Because you've always worked incredibly hard, haven't you? I mean, you were, when you were a civil servant, you were, and once you'd done your stand-up comedy course, you were doing like four gigs a week. And then, of course, you were um, coaching Ed Miliband for Prime Minister's Questions, which were, I remember you telling me about the hours and just ridiculous hours. Have you had any times in your work life in the last 25 years which haven't been absolutely manically busy? Gosh, it's a really, it's a really good question. Do you know what? I don't think I have. Probably the period between when I left the Labour Party and um, when Harriet stood down so that would have been in about October 2015 and then I did have a bit of a kind of I didn't really know what what I was kind of going to do with myself and I had a bit of an enforced um period for um I remember that sort of November December feeling really I actually didn't really have anything to do and it was an enforced rest but I also just felt really anxious because I am mm. definitely somebody who needs to be busy. I, I, I am a bit of a workaholic, but I find that work kind of, if I'm busy, it gives me a bit of a peace. If I'm not busy, I do tend to panic. I'm also so bad at spending time by myself, Christina. Like some people are brilliant and like, well, I just potted around for a bit and I made some banana bread and then <laughs> I got going on my sourdough. I'm just not like that. I, I'm either good working or I go feral. Like there's no <laughs> in between. 
Do you know, I was so brainwashed by Instagram. I'm the world's least domestic person. I hate cooking. I was so brainwashed by Instagram that I did actually make a banana bread, but it wasn't very nice. And I haven't touched it since. I think half of it's still in the freezer. And that was the last that was the last thing I well, I don't remember years. I probably haven't baked a cake since I was a child, pretty much. Um you mentioned the Londoner, and I know you, as you said, normally you'd have to go to loads of parties. What did you do in terms of, um, you know, getting snippets of gossip during this time? How did you pull it together, sort of just logistically? So, I mean, it was it was really, really difficult because you do rely so much on, you know, meeting people at events. And it's often at those events where you pick up really great intel and you hear stories and anecdotes and gossip and, and all of that type of thing. And, and of course, all of that um, completely fell apart. And it's it's different doing it on things like, you know, if you know people very well, of course, you can ring them and you can sort of WhatsApp them and stuff. But it is it's much more difficult, particularly with um, politicians. We just had to work very, very hard. We had to really, um, you know, make a big effort to be in touch with with people we also um had to be quite creative in terms of you know what what were people doing now to to get their stories out i mean actually there was an explosion of things like podcasts online events so we started to sort of really get on sort of top of those Mm. but it's definitely been uh uh it's been a real real challenge and i think it's been it's been a challenge for news and kind of newspapers anyway, because mm. what you, I mean, obviously the news pages have been very, very filled with COVID understandably. And the politics has been very much dominated by that. But what you will know as well from your time in newspapers, there's so much other stuff, which is really driven by events, mm, whether exactly. they're in the arts, whether they're the celebrity things, whether, you know, people promoting stuff. And it has been a, it's been a big 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 struggle i've really really noticed it and you know colleagues from other papers as well have 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 said the same thing it's been really tough mm. and sort of from a non-work point of view what have you found if anything most challenging about lockdown i am really gregarious as you know i'm very much an extrovert i sort of mm. love hanging out with people and showing off basically and i find it so hard and i just was like i just i think it took me a long time to actually for the penny to drop i think at first i was a bit like oh this is all you know i can't obviously have a bit of gallows humor being a comedian and having worked in labor politics for such a long time so you're gonna try and see the the funny side of everything at the beginning it was like and then it was like, oh, my God. I mean, at the beginning, it was kind of funny, especially because I'm the only person in the country who spent two years thinking about joining a gym and joined a really expensive gym and went the first time the day Boris Johnson announced the <laughs> And I was actually doing some ridiculous aerial acrobatic yoga class. I know I'm such a cliche. And it was like a Bridget Jones. I was literally hanging upside down in this position with like my ass hanging out, like really embarrassing. It was actually ironically called the bat position as well. Oh, the irony. <laughs> and I'm in the bat position, like massive bum in the air, like can't breathe. And this man comes running into the, the, the studio going, we're going into lockdown. We're going into lockdown. I was thinking, oh, brilliant. Like only I, only this could happen to I mean, two years I've been thinking about joining this gym Christina honestly I was like oh, oh so 
So that didn't go so well. So my fitness has not massively taken off over lockdown. But I did, I did feel lonely. I did feel really, really lonely because, you know, I live by myself. My family is very far away in Scotland. Mm. My mum and dad like refused to use Zoom. They were like, we really don't, A, we don't need to see you. And I don't think we want to see you because you're probably feral. I was like, that's a very good point. And um, it was tough. And I think, but I think, I think everybody had a bit of, oh, the grass is greener. So I find it quite lonely. But I mm. think what's interesting is that I think speaking to my friends, so I was quite envious of my friends who were living with their partners or like, you know, had a family and, you know, all that sort of thing. But then my friends who had all that were ringing me saying, we're also jealous of you because you're by yourself and you yeah. live by yourself. So I think everybody felt a bit like the grass is greener in terms yes. of everybody else. But the truth yeah. is, everybody had a terrible time universally. Yeah, yeah. And how much has that changed for you? I mean, how much? Because obviously you got the amazing job at Times Radio and that meant actually leaving the house and going into a studio. Was that your first sort of foray into a work arena away from home? So I had two very weird forays into the world of work. Most of my work was done from home, all my journalism, all my broadcasting, evening standard stuff, all my columns. But I made my actual first journey to do any work stuff was to interview Keir Starmer in oh. Parliament oh, after wow. he won. Yeah, I didn't I didn't know you did that in Parliament. I didn't realise that. I thought you'd done it on Zoom. How amazing. No, we actually went into we went into his office in uh, Parliament, which is a massive room, and he sat mm. at one end and, and Joe Murphy and I and my colleague from the Evening Standard, we sat at the other and it was all very um socially distanced. But that was very weird because to go into Parliament yes. in the middle of this kind of pandemic, there were still a couple of MPs around, but that did feel that did feel quite weird, I have to say. Um and then the other thing that I did, which was hilarious, was I did have I got news for you. Um but I didn't go into the studios. It's like a, they did it sort of remotely, but a whole load of men came into my house and turned my front room into like a, a kind of studio. So lots of like Goodness. two men in these hazmat suits. I was like, this is so exciting. I have men in my flat. This is really exciting. <laughs> um, and um, that was weird because I hadn't had anyone into my house for ages and you have it was all very um socially distanced I had to sign lots of forms I was upstairs when they came down when they were downstairs and I went out to the garden while they were so but it was that was very weird because you know you you had been living under these rules saying don't have anybody into your house and then suddenly there's this entire like BBC mm. an entire studio was set up in your front room Amazing, amazing. And have you had any kind of secret pleasures in lockdown, things that you didn't expect to enjoy that you really have enjoyed? A couple of things. Um, I definitely think that um, I found a lot of comfort from uh, some of the sort of Zoom calls, which I know everybody's really down on, but I did actually think it was a great way of keeping in touch with people. Mm. And I had I have a whole group of um, Scottish friends and we would all sort of get together on a Friday night. And, oh, great. And my God, we, honestly, 
I cannot tell you how much we drank, Christina. It was like we, but we felt we were very, very patriotic to the Scottish economy because we would order like a ton of like Scottish gin. We did like a Scottish gin tasting night. And I'm not joking. I live by myself, but I walked downstairs in the morning and I was like, it looked like there'd been a party. It looked like there'd been a massive party. So, um, or you know, Orcadian and Scottish gin have given me a lot of um joy. But the other thing is that my um. I formed a very good relationship with my neighbours, which I'd always got on quite well with them. But I think we've already come, we've become so close since lockdown. And we live on this little street. um, And what we would do every Saturday night is have like a sort of impromptu pavement drinks party where we'd all, you can tell there's a lot of alcohol being like figured in my my lockdown. But we'd all have on a Saturday night at six o'clock, we'd have a sort of standing appointment where we'd all stand on our sort of front doorsteps and have like really great chats. And that- Clap clap the neighbours eventually. Yes, it's like (laughs) clapping the neighbours, clapping the neighbours. And it was so nice. Like we we just all felt like it really cemented our friendships. Mm. It's very cheesy. When good neighbours become good friends, it was very Mm. cheesy, but it was really- nice we've had the same that is really nice and I think I think lots of people actually have have got to know their neighbours much better and had uh, much better conversations than they would normally have with them and and um, you know these things they all add to the kind of quality of daily life don't they yeah definitely definitely and have you have you learned anything about yourself that you well that you didn't know before during this time Uh, I really like pizza (laughs) and wine um I think what I've learned is that I am very resilient Mm. and I think um because I you know I I I know that I can sort of work hard and as you say I've always had quite a sort of full-on working hours and things but I've always really bounced off other people so to have sort of got through this by myself um, I think you know teaches me something about myself I mean I don't know if I'd necessarily want to have to test that again mm. um, but I think that was quite that was quite interesting because I always thought that if I didn't have company I would like lose it like I would I just wouldn't be able to function you know as somebody who was a performer and somebody who's very you know likes socializing a lot I thought that you know I would sort of wither and sort of crumble away without that oxygen of of seeing people um so I suppose that's been quite a sort of thing I've learned about myself also I'm really bad at practical domestic things like I tried to change a duvet cover and it took me about three days I thought I was going to have to sleep inside the duvet cover just because. I know, I find duvet covers a real problem, I must say. And then the other thing I've learned is I literally cannot cook. Like, you know how some people really had that epiphany where they were like, hey, like I just really, I, so many things went badly wrong for me during my attempts at cooking. And I tried to cook a meal, which I was quite proud of. And it was made up of kind of a bit of leftovers and because it was at that time there wasn't much in the shop mm. and it was this absolutely like revolting turkey mince kind of like um a, a creation but I was quite proud of it and I put it on Twitter and I got so many horrible messages oh. basically saying this looks like pig swill and like you couldn't even feed this to people in prison and then I got a message from Nigella Lawson saying that was like really really bad <laughs> Well, to get a message from Nigella Lawson would count as a as a as a win for for most people, even if it it was with a plate of something pretty unpalatable. But it's funny. I think. I mean, I adore eating. I just hate cooking. It's uh, it it's strange, isn't it? 
It is. It is. It's funny how some people went really domestic goddess and some people went the other way. <laughs> I wanted to ask, you're, you're, I mean, obviously you're the daughter of immigrants, Indians from Assam, but did they have your work ethic? Because I don't think I know anyone with your work ethic. I mean, not even first generation immigrants <laughs> with your work ethic. Did they work as hard as you do? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I... Um, I do have moments where I'm really lazy. As I said, I think I'm sort of feast or famine on, on the work stuff. Um, it is, that is a very good question. So yes, they did, they did work very hard, but I, I was, I'm, you know, I was always really seized of my mother, particularly telling me that life was going to be really tough for me. Mm. And she, and my dad as well. And they didn't say it in a really, you know, horrid, scary, bad way, but they were very matter of fact about it. And they were sort of right. My mum, because I remember from when I was a wee girl, I did, you know, my mum was like, do something safe, be a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant. And I was like, I want to do something different. I want to do something with writing or the media or comedy. Or my mum was like, no, 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 no. And my mum kept saying to me, look, you don't understand that people like us it it doesn't work we can't do those kinds of things Mm. it's just not the way it's going to be and we will have to work you know you'll have to work three times as hard as your other friends just because of who you are and there's no point crying about it or getting upset about it that is just the way it's going to be Mm. so I think I was always I sort of always had that in the back of my head and I'm afraid it's true as we know in terms of how um that lovely thing kind of structural discrimination sort of works Mm. and and things, but I, I, I think the other thing that I do feel is that so when I went to university, I was seventeen, and my parents had been really strict with me. They definitely had like quite a high work ethic. I mean, my teenage years were sort of like a hostage situation. I was basically like chained to the radiator and made to study for like the most of my teenage years. Excellent so, preparation for lockdown. In other words, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So when I'm 17, I go off to university in Hull and I'm quite young to be heading off to university because of just the Scottish years. So I go off to Hull University and I just go mad, Christina. I go absolutely mad because I've never been allowed out. I've never (laughs) been able to have any fun in my entire life. And I meet these amazing gang of girls and we just like have this outrageously fun time for three years. And I did no work at university, like zero work. Like I was doing this law degree and I didn't I, I didn't even know what jurisprudence was. Me and my friend thought it was a case about a woman called Judith Prudence. <laughs> and like we were so bad. And so I think when I left university, my parents were so horrified with my lack of um, industry and uh, endeavor. And I was so horrified by it as well. I think I think we all kind of took a moment. And then I think in my head mentally, I was like, OK, they were your fun years. And like, now you've got to properly sort it's your over. life out. <laughs> you, you've had your fun. You've had your fun. But you did You did a law degree. Was that parental pressure then? Yes, total. I and mean, you had, did you have, did you actually plan to become a lawyer or did, had you not thought that far ahead? No, I mean, I had no idea really what I wanted to become. I mean, actually I did have, I, what I really wanted to do was to do something in, in news. That's what I really wanted to do. Mm. I mean, you mentioned the Times Radio thing. So, you know, that, for me that was a really personal lovely moment because when I was like little I used to fantasize about being in a studio and like yeah. reading the news so Fantastic. you know that was very exciting um but no I really I didn't 
I didn't really know and I remember leaving university and just thinking god I have no idea what I want to what I want to do I did actually want to work in the media um I did a postgraduate in in journalism and and politics and but I applied to tons of places and I didn't even get like rejection letters and I did get some rejection letters but I didn't I didn't get anywhere so I, I just thought right I'm gonna have to you know when you have literally no clue about what you're going to do in your life I mm. did feel I didn't have like a huge sense of right this is what I want to do this is my destiny in 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 life at all no nor me when I went to see a careers officer at university um I said oh I'd, I'd really like to go into journalism and she said well it's very competitive and I thought well I better not try then and I instantly gave up and um and I didn't become I didn't get a job on newspaper till I was 39 wow having done uh, uh, lots of freelance journalism by then on top of full-time jobs but I certainly was never one of these people who thought oh you know I can go into journalism and doors will open for me and it, the fact is it is very hard to get into journalism and when doors open it's usually because you have access which I certainly didn't have and and you didn't have yeah. So you so you ended up, uh, not ended up, because you must have been a grand age of something like 21, maybe 22, in the civil service as a press officer. How did you find the civil service? Were you on balance impressed, disappointed? Uh, did you like the work? So, I mean, I, I really loved my time in the civil service. And I'm really grateful that my career which has ended up being a political career I'm really glad that it started in in the civil service and despite the the many slings and arrows that the civil service um face there's a lot of good in the civil service and there is a you know it's important to learn that the civil service is the basis it's the you know it's the basis of of politics it's the basis of government mm. well it used to be yeah. um it, it used to be I mean that's a whole different sort of separate conversation but mm. I learned so much about government I learned so much about how departments work how they work well how they work badly I mean I had was lucky enough to work in quite a few different um departments so my first department was the Ministry of Agriculture Fisheries and Food and that was in 1997 just at the tail end of a huge scandal the BSC scandal um massive food safety crisis and it had been seen as quite a kind of backward department and it was really interesting kind of coming in at the end of that crisis when they were trying to kind of reform the department to try and modernize it to try and kind of work out why things had gone so badly wrong um, and it was also a fascinating time to be a civil servant on the communication side of things mm. because Labour had just won and Labour was revolutionising government communications you know mm. Alison Campbell was 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 there you know you were seeing how the kind of old guard were were having to be told look you, you have to change how you do communications it was the advent of 24-hour news as well you know Sky was just mm. beginning to sort of start up so it was a, I feel like I learned a lot but after you know, many years, and I had worked my way in different departments. I'd been at sort of Ministry of Agriculture, the Home Office. I was there a really interesting time with when the McPherson report into the murder of Stephen Lawrence came out, when Jack Straw was Home Secretary. I was then at the Department of Trade and Industry with um, Patricia Hewitt. I was her um, Chief Press Secretary for for a long time. Um, I worked in Downing Street as well. You know, I had some amazing um, experiences, but I did feel I. I started to feel quite frustrated because I could feel myself wanting to become more political and wanting to have a voice and wanting to have opinions about things. And I knew there was a line 
and I shouldn't cross it. Mm. But I felt I was intellectually and sort of morally coming close to that line. So I, I sort of thought, right, I think my time's up in the civil service. But I really enjoyed it. So you became a special advisor working with Gordon Brown, Ed Miliband, Harriet Harman, which I know you won't want to say too much about the individuals. I imagine you won't want to, though I'd love to ask. But which aspects of the work did you find most challenging? Ooh, so I think what I find most challenging was internal politics is always very, very um, difficult. And you might sit there with your minister and have a brilliant idea to do something. Your stakeholders may love it. Your civil servants may be on board. Um, but then you go and sort of pitch it to the powers that be at number 10 and they're like, nope, we're just absolutely not doing that. And there's no sometimes there's no rhyme or reason why they don't want to do it. It's just somebody above the food chain doesn't like it or in my case I think there was a lot of um you know and I've talked about this in my stand-up stuff and Harriet has written about this in her books I think there was a lot of institutional sexism mm. I think that that was something I found really hard like I remember being very early in my time as a, a special advisor and um being in a meeting it was a it was a, a meeting with lots of trade unionists and party activists um and it was all about formulating policy for the manifesto and they were saying to us you know why don't you do more on the gender pay gap and I was really I was probably quite naive but I was very honest and I said to them look we, we would absolutely love to and we absolutely should be but you know I'll be honest with you the the people at the department of business don't don't want us to do it because they're worried about what the CBI will say and and mm -hmm. you know blah 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 and then the next thing I know I get the most unbelievable like bullying phone call from a senior advisor from the department of business at the time who was much more senior than me and you know his status was much greater than than mine I was like but a minnow just absolutely abusing me for having the temerity to to, to to say that and that I should never be talking about the gender pay gap and you know and I remember getting told off a lot by basically senior men who were advisors for being too lefty I mean ironic now given that yeah. I get called like <laughs> the most you know now that you're a tiller, now that you're Aisha the Hun you know <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly but I used to get told off so much and of course Harriet did as well and I was really proud to work for Harriet but I remember feeling really ground down by that I found that really really hard I found it unfair I felt quite powerless um and it was horrible just being phoned up and like shouted at on mm. a regular basis mm. um but we triumphed in the end because we got our piece of legislation through yes. the Equality Act so I think and all the people who really slagged us off at the time and called us these kind of crazy feminists and we were going to, you know, um, now are like, oh, I'm so pleased to have played my small part in helping you with that piece of literature. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that was, when you look at, frankly, the horror show of politics at the moment, I think it doesn't seem like a very attractive prospect for anyone except basically a complete nutcase or, well, a complete uh, sociopath, actually, to go into. But clearly, we need people who are not sociopaths to go into it. And it's easy to think that it's hard to do good in it. But the Equality Act is an incredible achievement. Is that the thing you're proudest of in your career? Yes, I think it, I think it is. Um, I, I'm, very, I'm very proud of that. And I think why I'm so proud of it is because, as I've said to you, there was like a lot of struggle with it, mm -hmm. not just from the, you know, the 
the forces of um, conservatism, like the Daily Mail would run a headline literally every week going, oh, our favourite, I was like, Christmas is being cancelled. And my favourite headline, you're going to love this, Christina, the favourite headline was that no white man would ever get a job ever again under these, like, <laughs> crazy proposals. <laughs> like, none, ever, ever. Um, and that, so that was, like, a kind of a favourite. But what I loved about it was that it was this thing I talked about earlier, this team effort between, mm. I mean, obviously, Harriet was an incredibly inspiring sort of you know like feminist political leader on this but it was a huge team effort it was harry we had some amazing other ministers um who worked with us like maria eagle uh, vera baird like we had some amazing um, amazing amazing female politicians and also we had our, a really fabulous team of uh, civil servants and like civil service press officers who worked with us and also it wasn't just like internal we also had an incredible union with loads of like feminist charities and think tanks and people pushing from the third sector as well and it was nice to be part of something which was a massive shared endeavor and that's I think when you see politics at its best politics and government at its best. Mm. Do you can decent people be effective and popular politicians oh, I think it's I think it's hard in the current climate that we're in if I'm being mm. really really honest I think um the the decent often don't survive for very mm. long partly because they haven't got the stomach for it or they get politically killed off very quickly um, I mean, politics has always been tough, but I've never known it. You know, I've been around Westminster for tw over 20 years. I've never known it be such a blood sport as it is now. Um, I also think the thing which is hard is that the this whole thing of sort of loyalty above, above everything, it, it really penalises people who want to speak out and you know do the right thing why would you you know if you've got any sense of ambition why would you why would you be the person in government who risked your career and probably not just risked your career you you would risk losing the whip and you risk being mm. deselected mm. and you've had the comedy strand of your career going since what your mid-20s late yeah. 20s yeah mid-20s and which is I mean, obviously very short because you're still very young, but, uh, but but still quite a long time. Um, I can't begin to imagine what it's like to stand in front of a group of people kind of basically challenging you to make them laugh. And you were doing that often four times a week on top of a full time job. And one might think you'd have to be a masochist to do it, but I don't think you are a masochist. So what what do you get out of it? It's definitely quite a scary thing to do. And I have had moments where I'm just about to go on stage and I think, this is a cry for help. Why am I doing this? This is really nerve wracking. But it is also a, a, a brilliant, brilliant thing to do. I mean, the rush that you get when you make people laugh. I mean, I love making people laugh. Like mm -hmm. it is my happiest thing in the world to genuinely make somebody laugh even just in conversation I get a huge buzz off it and so you know that is massively amplified when I'm on stage and it's really nice as well when for example I've done my stand-up shows which I think you've come to see yeah they're brilliant absolutely oh. brilliant thank you Jackson the post and um 
like what's really nice about those as well is that that's something which is completely me um often it's a bit polemic like there's a bit of a mm. you know a, a, not it's not just joke 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 it's it's a bit of a narrative it's a bit of a story i tend to write shows about things that i you know care about i mean some people have criticized them as being oh well it's a bit it's a bit worthy or a bit sort of woke but you know i i i, I quite like having i think humor is a really powerful way to communicate with people mm. or open someone's mind up to seeing something from a slightly you know different point of, of view so I love it and it gives you an incredible sense of achievement and um, joy you know it's just really yes. lovely when you are in a room with people and there's a joke that you really love and you've crafted it and you've worked really hard at it and I love the run-up to a really good joke and you're like, oh, my God, I hope they're going to like it. And then you do it and then they love it and you love it and everyone's laughing. It's just such a joyful feeling. Yes. Yes. Well, it is. It, yeah, that's right. It is about joy, isn't it? And about play, really, which we in lots of ways as adults don't get enough of. But there's also presumably a particular role for comedy in dark times. And we certainly are in dark times so what what would you say comedy can do at a time like this well I would hope that comedy could be a, a good place but I feel like you know I always used to feel like comedy was a bit of a safe space for me so no matter how nasty politics was was getting or or other things I found comedy a place where I could not be policed and you know you 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 could sort of look at things in a different angle but I, I I'm going to be honest with you I feel slightly in despair that comedy has been dragged into the culture wars at the yeah, moment I, I mean we've just had mm. this huge you know ding dong about you know left-wing bias at the BBC mm -hmm. and panel shows and and all of this kind of thing and I think that would be I think that would be a real shame I mean I do think that that comedy should have a place and I think what I what I've always liked about particularly a comedy club I think it's slightly changing now, obviously, because of digital and online. But what I used to love is you would go into a comedy club, which is a very intimate, private space. It's normally not broadcast or streamed. So you're in this unique, in-the-moment situation. And it was a place where you could um, challenge things both on the left, on the right. You could sort of, you know, subvert different sort of topics. Um, and I thought that was very healthy. And I think that's really, really important. I think there are some things, places where you should be able to kind of let rip about things on a whole different range of, 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 of topics. And, you know, I always found that, that that was quite kind of cathartic. But I feel that that is changing now, like comedy is becoming very political on the left and on the right, yeah. um, as, as everything is. And I hope it doesn't become like the next, you know, battlefield in this never ending culture like I don't want to feel that as a comedian I mean my comedy is pretty like as, 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 as it's been criticized by many right wing white male commentators as being a bit woke and feminist and lefty but I have also had you know I'm sure some of the stuff I would say would would have criticism from from other people as well you know and you don't want to feel that you're policed in terms of what you know you can explore as a as a comedian because mm. you're trying to be there as a, is in more of an art space than a sort of here's my kind of you know pol politics space um and i do yes. I, I i hope that doesn't become you know the next victim of this horrid phase that we're in 
No, well, it's very interesting because I do think almost everything has been contaminated by culture wars in a way. I, I talked to Jackie Kay, who you probably know is a Scots Macar. Do you know her work at all? I don't her that well, oh, she's, she's wonderful, really wonderful. Um, and she was saying that we were talking about Black Lives Matter and the protests she'd been on and so on. She was brought up um, as the adopted mixed race daughter of a white Scottish communist couple wow. and had a very interesting background as you can imagine and also experienced a lot of racism as a child as, as I think you did as I think anyone does in our society sadly but she was saying that her her son and his generation they're sort of around 30 they're very uh, very um, passionate in wanting to change things and very compassionate but also quite intolerant of you know people using the wrong word and things like that and I wondered sort of where you felt, for example, Black Lives Matter, it's a complex issue and we could spend hours talking about it. But would you say on balance what has happened in the past few months has been helpful or not? Um, oh, it's, there's, there's so much um, there's so much in that. I mean, I suppose mm. like anything, there's 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 a com there's a complicated answer on this. So why have the black lives, why has this explosion in activism happened? It's because of the murder of a number of, of black people in America. So I'm, that's not a good thing. Of course, that's that's not a good thing. Um, but what has been interesting and 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 a positive thing is that it has been a wake up call for a lot of, of people. I think everybody or most right minded people have been absolutely shocked by what they've seen and has made everybody think um a lot more about about this stuff so that of course is a good thing but what's now happening is that um we're coming up to that very very difficult moment of of activism where there is how do you take that sort of protest and move it into a place of power how do you take the kind of rage from people in the street and get that into the you know corridors of um, you know Westminster, or indeed into our newsrooms, or into our courtrooms, or into all the institutions of society which which makes the rules and, and shapes society, and that's where the big disconnect is is sort of happening. I mean, I feel as somebody you know who's been involved in you know equality campaigning for you know such a long time, twenty years now. Um, you know, progress is is always kind of painfully slow and you will have these moments of explosion of, of rage and they're very, very important. But what happens, um, you know, what happens after them? Like yesterday, I got a really interesting phone call from a, um, a young black female journalist who is also, she's not just an, a journalist, she's like an activist as well. And she was... Um, saying that she wants to find a way to like because there's lots of different groups and everybody of course is making a lot of noise and she was saying look what is a practical thing that we can 
focus on like what's a practical thing mm. and her suggestion and I think this is absolutely right I mean the reason she wanted to speak to me is because a big part of the Equality Act was gender peer reporting mm. and she was saying we should be having ethnic minority peer reporting which I think is a really really good thing to, to well do. they often do I mean they do in a lot of organ well some organizations don't they they do but it's not it's not again across the board I mean the government was no. looking at it and I think now with COVID I mean even the gender peer reporting has been shelved for the time being because yeah. of because of COVID and so you know she was saying look I've done a lot of the kind of protest stuff and now I just want to know who do I influence who do I talk to and I think that's um that's the stuff which is really 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 hard and there are no easy answers to it I mean I think it is really good that we are having a conversation about this what I do worry about though is that there's so much um there's so much anger and there's a lot of splintering as well and there does need to be a bit of a focus on what we want. Now, that's slightly, of course, unfair, because why should it be on the shoulders of the, you know, the people who are the victims and all of this to, mm. to sort it all out? But, but sadly, there is a universal truth, which is people who have power, who are the patriarchy, who tend to be white privileged men, it's increasingly women. Now, I do, do can absolutely concede and acknowledge that. Guess what? Warm words are fine. They're now, you know, most people are quite happy to give all the warm words. But guess what? People do not like giving up their power. They do mm, not exactly. like giving away their seat at the table. They mm. do not, when it actually comes to the really, you know, important things, they, they don't they don't want to do it. And I do feel that um, this, I'm kind of sick of warm words mm. on all of this stuff. Um and I'm get very frustrated at lack of action. And it's, you know, there's there's the government, you know, this new review that has been done into racial equality just makes me mm. kind of, you know, gnash my teeth because yeah. how many more reviews do you it's have? Ridiculous. So Aisha, you you do all these different things and you are absolutely not uh, a jack of all trades. But which if you were to pick a kind of core work identity, what would it be? Oh, that's really interesting. Um, I suppose at the moment, um, I'm really enjoying broadcasting. Mm. I'm really you are brilliant. You are just a natural <laughs> at it. It's, I mean, it's like what you were born to do in a way, isn't it? It kind of combines everything. I just love it. And I really love my show on Times Radio, which is Saturday and Sunday, 4 till 7. Um, <laughs> it's it's great and I think what's really nice about it is because it's like a new station it's um it's quite innovative and we're given a lot of freedom over how we shape our shows so I like having a big variety um I do a lot of kind of sort of really breaking news for and now we have like a news hour which is really pacey and get through like we get through like a lot of big um topics like meaty topics which I know I enjoy and you enjoy as well because of course mm. you do the paper review brilliantly on, on on Sky and it's great to just rattle through big chunky headline news stories it's, it's brilliant it's just exactly what people like us love to do and then um, I have a discussion with MPs I have an MPs panel on a Sunday um, and it's not sort of obviously cabinet minister level it's kind of newer MPs and the, those discussions are fascinating mm. to hear you know from MPs you don't often know that much about mm. and then I talk about arts and culture I completely diverge and have a discussion about arts and culture I also have a, on a Saturday a kind of a review of the week with um, two stand-up comedians so that's mm. where I kind of 
get my keep my sort of comedy hand in the till it's a sort of you know my have I got news for you little kind of dream is sort of in there and then I I also have the space to do some deep dives into topics which again are, are interesting to me like the thing I was telling you about trust in politics I did a really fascinating deep dive the other night into um not just domestic violence but like the long tame tale of economic abuse which often mm. goes along with domestic mm. violence so I love it and I just love having that ability to just discuss a whole range of different topics in a sort of, and do it and have like different sections so there's a lot of variety to it. It's fantastic I mean it's literally like a job designed for you but then I think in some ways it is designed for you in that the show is designed around your interests and expertise and and how wonderful for that to happen during a pandemic I mean who can say there haven't been any silver linings and if, <laughs> and if, if you were to pick one thing to hope for we, we touched on a lot of rather rather grim things but if you were to pick one thing you, you think might actually come out of this pandemic that is good what would that be? Well, I do hope that we, um, you know, I, I feel like this whole working from home business has again become part of the culture war, of course, like everything yes, else. But I do feel that that could be quite a revolution in terms of, you know, we've talked for years about how we want to try and get a better work-life balance. And, you know, it's a subject that I have worked on for just, oh my God, back in 2002, I think we introduced like the right to request flexible working. This is when I was at Department of Trade and Industry with Patricia, with Patricia Hewitt and everybody was acting like the pillars of the temple was going to fall down just because you had the right to ask not to get just to ask for flexible working and I do hope that we genuinely have a bit of a revolution on that because I think families have been so much happier having a bit like more time I just hope I do think we have to have a hybrid I think we do have to get back to some kind of normality for all our sakes our mental health for our hospitality our art theatre business all that kind of thing but I just hope we can like remember that it was nice just to get a bit of time to breathe during this pandemic not commuting as much has been just a joy for everybody Mm. um spending a bit more time with your family or in my case a bit more time on your sofa watching Netflix is like (laughs) I do I think it was you know in terms of slowing down a bit I think there is something in that and I say that as somebody who's a complete workaholic (laughs) (laughs) brilliant uh well thank you so much Aisha it's been an absolute delight to have you on the podcast oh thanks so much Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you liked it, I'd be really grateful if you could share, rate and review it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcast. It really does help other people find it. Do follow me on Twitter where I'm at Queen Christina underscore and on Instagram where I'm at Queen Christina Writer. If you want to find out how I dealt with my own big work interruption, you could check out my book, The Art of Not Falling Apart, which is recommended self-isolation reading in The Guardian and The Eye. Here's to not falling apart and doing work that works for all of us. And I hope you'll join me again next week.